Welcome to No Way Out, the podcast dedicated to helping individuals and teams across all disciplines improve their capacity for free and independent action. Each week, through thoughtful conversation with leading professionals and academics, hosts Mark McGrath and Brian Pontrevera aim to develop and advance John Boyd's ideas. Join us as we explore the theories and concepts that informed Boyd's UDA sketch, their connections to today's emerging human-centered ideas, and how this knowledge can help us comprehend, shape, and adapt to our unfolding reality. So put your children on vibrate, put your phones to bed, and strap in as you are about to get airborne, and we are about to disrupt your OODA loop. So, John, I heard a great podcast of you speaking with a previous guest of this show, Hunter Hastings, who's a uh, co-author with me on two papers on uh, John Boyd applied to uh, entrepreneurial theory. And I send you some stuff and then you reply back with an article that you had written about John Boyd and his article is famous, really his only published piece, Destruction and Creation. Why don't you uh, share with us what you were thinking when you discovered that and some of the applications that you may have seen in the uh, asset management space or investing space. Yeah, I was in a I was in a meeting, I don't know, five or six years ago, probably. I don't even remember who it was with. And somebody referenced John Boyd. And I was like, who is John Boyd? And he's like, oh, my goodness, you don't know who John Boyd is. You are, you know, you are missing out. You need to go read some John Boyd. So, of course, I read uh, you know, I forget the, the author, uh, the, the biography of John Boyd that everybody reads. And I was just completely blown away. And on the creation and destruction point, you know, that really, that really spoke to me because I had been doing a lot of research on my book, um, which is really about investment mental models and, and partially had, had really like the idea of, of really it's the it's it's the old problem of induction right so it, it goes back you know hundreds of years you know boyd's creation and destruction somewhat rests on this this whole problem of induction i think it was david hume the, the philosopher that really really hit on it and i was just like oh what what an amazing concept so i went and read that paper it's like what seven or eight pages and it's one of the most dense and i don't mean that in a bad way i mean the ideas per sentence or per per square inch of paper were just like unbelievable, you know, and, and I'd read and I'd read previously about, you know, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. I'd read about Godel's, you know, theorems and everything, but still had to go back and read and refresh myself on those before I could even make it through the paper and then had to read it again and again and parts again and again. And, and then I just saw it as a challenge to be able to write a blog post. So I have a blog that Publish a few times a week to write a blog post that could sort of explain it while still doing it justice because <laughs> it's it's so big. Yeah, it's not at all easy to understand. I'm I'm a bachelor of arts in history, right? Undergrad, and even even as a master's yeah. with economics, I, I had to read read and read it over and over because to your point, it's very dense. There's a beautiful epistemology by uh, Chuck Spinney, who was uh, Boyd's primary collaborator that helped him construct the uh, OODA loop in its final form. And once, once he came out with that in 2014, um, and we'll link to that, it's a, it made destruction and creation not only readable, but really informed the rest of Boyd's work because everything that Boyd riffed off of from that point forward 
uh, till his death goes back to that uh, that sort of three pronged approach of entropy, uncertainty, and incompleteness. You know, second law of thermodynamics, yeah. uh, uncertainty principle, and the incompleteness theorem, and then. That was his snowmobile, which you uh, wrote about in the article. That was his snowmobile. How do we make sense of the world as these uh, circumstances unfold? Now, I've been under the impression for, you know, my almost when I was in asset management for almost 20 years, it's the most applicable place to apply it. This is one of the best environments um, in that it's always Mm -hmm. changing. It's always fluid. And you also have nothing but human decisions presenting themselves by form of price movements and in business decisions and everything, it's the best place for for uh, applying Boyd's theories. What do you th- what do you think of that? Yeah, I think it's it's it is it's it's like this this laboratory of you know human decision making, and and you can just see how complex adaptive systems work, and and it's just crazy. And you look at you look at economists, and like I loved economics. I took a lot. I majored in finance, but I took a lot of economics courses. And I love, I love economics, but you know, I think the the number one problem with economics is they have what Andrew Lowe of MIT, who's an economist describes as physics envy, right? So basically what economists want is, is something like Newton's, you know, laws of motion that will govern the economy and the complex adaptive system that is the economy. And it doesn't, it doesn't work. Like they, they, they put math and formulas into everything and math and formulas don't govern how humans interact with each other in a changing external environment and feedback loops on their, their decisions. It just, it just doesn't. And what Andrew Lowe of MIT says is, is really the economy is less like physics and it's more like biology. It's like evolution, right? Just sped way up where things are adapting and, and changing over time. And there's all this randomness that occurs that has real effects. that is usually impossible to predict, but you know, w- what happens is you get theories like Andrew Lowe, who has come up with what he calls his adaptive markets theory, and no one has heard of it. And it's because it's not satisfying because as humans, we want to, we want patterns. So to have someone, even from MIT say, Hey, guess what? (laughs) You know, I'm going to tear down your ideas that you're going to be able to express these patterns with all these formulas and and it doesn't work well. And and then, uh, uh, Benoit Manabrat, the, the, the father, the inventor of fractal geometry, you know, he wrote this amazing book called The Misbehavior of Markets. He took fractal geometry and applied it to, you know, the change in prices in, in the, the financial and economic markets. And it just showed you can so much better model what's going on in the economy and the financial markets with fractal geometry than you can the bell curve. But no one's ever heard of this because it doesn't set expectations for the future. Like you can't make money off of it. It can help you not lose money, but you know, people don't want to buy the idea of uncertainty and, and, and chaos. Right. But I, I think really what John Boyd, you know, if you look at, you know, him talking about the blitzkrieg and all that, it's like, if you can get to where you can, you can thrive in uncertainty and chaos, um, you're going to be the winner or like, like in the Brits blitzkrieg and what Germany did, they said, since we thrive better in chaos, we're going to create chaos. Right. (laughs) And then we're going to be able to thrive on it. But to your point in the financial markets, we don't need to create the chaos. It's always there. 
<laughs> you've got the uh, you've got the chaos daily. It, it, there's no rhyme or reason to anything of this constant ebb and flow of uh, price movement of you know literally billions of people in the world coming to market, whether they're going to stock exchanges or whether they're going to buy something at their local uh, store or whatever. Um, and you can't, uh, to your point, create a formula or an equation to explain exactly what they're doing because it's all asymmetrical. And right. I think that people are looking for symmetrical yes. solutions like linear formulas. They try to explain all that and it's absolutely impossible. It's kind of like we've had guests on to talk about uh, McNamara's kind of you know, quantitative body count strategy. You can't, you, you can't do that with numbers uh, when those numbers are reflecting on individual actions and individual choices and uh, individual decisions. You also mentioned patterns. And of course, you know, uh, that's Boyd's most famous uh, presentation uh, was, was patterns of conflict. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about those patterns is all the, the human traits that to your point, fractal, right? They, these things happen at the at the yeah. low level, the, the individual rifleman or the squad or the platoon or at the organization. It goes all the way up and down. But the patterns emerge from how humans uh, interact with the circumstances that that yeah. unfold. Such that you could probably write patterns of investing using the same the same principles. Yeah, maybe maybe probably you should do maybe that with it. <laughs> maybe that should be book number three. So this was book number one, my book, The Uncertainty Solution, How to Invest with Confidence to Face the Unknown. Book number two is is more on wealth and happiness and purpose. Maybe book number three will be the, you know, the patterns of uh, well, we can, patterns uh, of Well, we'd be happy to co-author that with you because we have a lot of the uh, of the Boyd stuff down. Well, that, and, and it goes to speak to the universality of the stuff. As long as there's humans present, this is where uh, where Boyd's theories uh, not only work, they're, they're totally applicable. And again, the, the 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 nature of everything investing, everything business decision making, you know, it, it, it's uh, it's right at home there. Um, the other thing that you mentioned was evolutionary biology, which to his dying day, literally on his beth deathbed, that was one of Boyd's uh, massive inputs to the final version. That when I say final, the version that he left of the OODA loop before he uh, passed away. His favorite book was How the Leopard Changed Its Spots, and that was by Brian Goodwin, and that was a uh, a mm -hmm. book on evolutionary biology. And you're right on. I mean, that's what's informing his thinking. It's not trying to find math equations for what people are going to do when they go to market. It's how are they behaving as organic organisms? Because I think that people forget that the markets, are, you know, market itself is a process, but the market or the, you know, any business or company or, you know, that's organic. It's people. It's made up of, uh, made up of humans. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I think one of the, the biggest difficulties is that, that people have in investing, whether they're individuals or I find this with with actual investment professionals, is this this inability to accept that there can be things that are both true at the same time that are opposite, right? And and you know F, F. Scott Fitzgerald probably uh, you know I probably won't get the quote exactly right, but he said you know the. The, the mark of a first rate intelligence is being able to hold two opposing thoughts in your head at the same time without going crazy. I mean, it, he said it more eloquently than that, but that's what's so difficult. And so you, you have these two things that are opposing, but true at the same time, which is patterns do exist in the financial markets and the economy. Like they, they absolutely do. But you also have this, this thing that is opposing to that, which is that they're constantly changing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and you can have these overarching, you know, patterns, but they're different and they change and the new ones come up. And, 
and what's so important to, to understand, it gets back to creation and destruction where you, you know, you, you infer the general from the specific, but then you need to continually look at tearing down your general rules, right? Because as your specific instances change and knowing when to do that, when, what's an outlier versus when is a pattern changing? And, and you see this constantly in investing in the sixties and seventies, leading into the seventies, you know, you had this, this idea of investing that you'd invest in the nifty 50, right? So a lot of listeners may have heard of this and it was these 50 blue chip companies that as long as you invest these companies, you were going to do amazing. And for a long time you did until you didn't, because basically too many people piled in, everybody knew about this investment and it just went on and on and on. And then all of a sudden it didn't. And then there was the opposite feedback loop. And there was another similar one called, you know, you invest in the dogs of the Dow. So if you invest in the worst performing members of the Dow at one period of time, they became the best performing and you do cycle and cycle. But then too many people started doing it and destroyed it. Then we saw this with hedge funds. I mean, it's just the pattern repeats over and over, but it's a different pattern every time, right? So you saw the rise of hedge funds. So, you know, hedge funds did, you know, really well in the nineties and kind of sailed through the, you know, the dot-com crash. And so what happened? People started piling into hedge funds, right? And then hedge funds, there was too much money chasing too few investment opportunities. And then hedge funds, you know, their, their alpha, which is a measure of outperformance was very positive then a little positive then almost nothing then quite negative after, after fees. And we see this over and over again, but it's a different pattern every single time. Right. But it, it does follow this, this general idea of pattern and, and again, this is the importance of tearing down. <laughs> you know, you, you, you see a pattern, it's a general pattern based on the specific instances, but then you need to reevaluate all the time of, That's of the, what's going on. Not, you, it's not enough to be an analyst. You also have to synthesize. That's one of Boyd's major points. And one of the prime components of orientation is yeah. analysis is not enough. And as you know, that the industry is filled with tremendous analysts. Well, right. what do we do with that? How do we break that down? And how do we build that snowmobile to try to uh, have an understanding or anticipation of what could be next? Um, do you find too that when things get so excessively aggregated or, you know, you see crowds moving into things, um, I mean, it, it really what you're describing, it, that's, behavioral traits that have a negative effect on our orientation, right? They're, 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 we're operating with bad mental models that we're putting yeah. in our orientation. So we're coming up with misaligned observations. You are listening to No Way Out, sponsored by AGLX. Now let's get back to building your confidence in complexity. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And, and failing to appreciate just the randomness and, and chance and what happens when you have a complex adaptive system and how hard it is to um, really understand what the output of a system is going to be when it's a when it's a complex, you know, complex adaptive system and 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 jumping to causation when, when, when none exists, you know, we are, we, we've evolved to be these pattern recognizing machines. And if you think about it, really, really what uncertainty is as it, as it's, you know, very basic definition is our inability to, to spot a pattern and, you know, being able to spot a pattern gave us a survival advantage, you know, 
back when the world was really dangerous and we were evolving as a, a species. Your ability to to see you know seasonal patterns, weather weather changes, the, the migration patterns of prey, uh, are those berries or mushrooms poisonous or nutritious? These things gave us a huge survival advantage. So those that were better at the spotting pa- patterns survived longer, and thus we are their descendants, right? But um, so when we can't spot a pattern it makes us feel anxious and worried. And sometimes it can trigger our fight or flight response. So we're constantly on the lookout for patterns. We, when we can't see them, we feel bad. And so then we want to resolve that. And then in addition, our physiology, which is fascinating, also gives us an incentive for resolving uncertainty because it causes us to calm back down. We get a dose of dopamine, which makes us feel pleasure. So we want to resolve uncertainty. So this idea that we don't like uncertainty and we want to resolve it is actually what's known as a primary human motive. So it, it's kind of operating usually behind the scenes, but it's always there influencing our behaviors and our decisions. And as part of that, when we have a bunch of randomness or noise or, or whatever is going on, we're constantly trying to see patterns and, or we're wanting to have causation or explanations for things constantly. And a lot of times there isn't a pattern. Or there isn't a good explanation, right? And what's really hard when it comes to investing, and especially being an advisor like I am, is your clients look to you and they want you to be able to make sense of the world, right? <laughs> they want you to be able to say, you know, uh, B happened and it was caused by A, not just, well, sometimes, you know, things just happen, you know, or we can't predict what's going to happen. So it's, it's, it's hard to do, but that's what we want is we want certainty, you know, because it's this underlying human motive and we're willing to set aside, you know, how the world really works and and turn to a fairy tale instead, you know, these 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 explanations that don't make sense or patterns that don't really exist because that's what we crave. And we do that by listening to this expert opinions on forecasts for what's going to happen in the future because it makes us feel like we have certainty. Even though if you do any research at all, investment and economic expert opinions are atrocious. In, in terms right, of this is a great seg to a very critical Boyd uh, maxim was number one, don't ever call him an expert ever. He would take massive offense to that because what he would say is that when you're calling me an expert, you're telling me I'm a know-it-all and I have no more further capacity to learn. And if you know destruction, creation, and Uda and other things, it's a model for oh. learning. It's really a, that's how we that's how we continuously learn. The second thing is analyst, because you said that the worst thing you can call me after that would be an analyst, because if I'm an analyst, you're calling me a halfwit. You're telling me that I'm really good at breaking things down, period, point blank, and I stop there. I can't synthesize. So I'm not, a, I have to be an, an, an analyst and a synthesis to yeah. create uh, novelty, right? To create something new that didn't previously exist. Yeah. And then I, when you think of like the best portfolio yeah. managers, the famous, yeah, famous investors, I mean, we know all the stories of everything. It seems to me oftentimes that they're, um, they have a different view of the world. Their, their view is largely differentiated from what everybody else is thinking. You were talking earlier about how uh, things can be opposing. The same thing can be opposing and, and, and true. Um, that's ambiguity. And that was another thing that was Boyd's favorite thing. You know, the average investor could look at something and say, oh my gosh, I'm staying away. I'm never going there. And then a, a savvy investor with a completely different orientation is going to have his, uh, observa- his or her observations uh, implicitly guided and controlled by being differentiated to see opportunity by looking at the same set of facts, by seeing opportunity mm-hmm. where others saw tremendous risk that they didn't want to get involved in. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it makes me think of, in terms of, of two opposing things being true, the first is to, to have a differentiated result in investing, you have to be different than the hurt, right? But on the other hand, you have this idea of the wisdom of crowds, which is the hurt is usually right. <laughs> so, so you have these two, you have these two opposing things of, of, of there, there's a reason why um, conventional wisdom is conventional wisdom. It's because there's often truth to it. But to be different, you have to do different things and you have to have a good reason for doing it. Like just the idea of just being a contrarian isn't just going to work out because you, you've got to be the contrarian at the right place and at the right time, right? And, and you know, we, we like the comfort of, of being in the herd, but that's not going to differentiate you. You have to, you have to be able to go outside the herd. And what's really hard with public stocks. So publicly traded stocks is if you think about it, there's, there's really three ways to outperform and you have to at least one. And the first is, is that you have better information. And again, this gets to the, like, like the, you know, the orientation point, you know, the, the, the or excuse me, the observation point, the first O in, in UDA, right? So, so you, you collect information, but the problem is with public stocks is it's nearly impossible to have better information. You know, basically what's happened with the internet and, and different securities laws and things like that is everybody has the ability to have the same information at the same time. It's hard. Maybe you can get a little here or there, but it's, it's really hard. The second is you can have better analysis and that's really hard because there are so many incredibly smart people that have gone into investment management because it's so lucrative. I mean, people that should be doing something more important with their lives. And I say that as, as a member of the wealth management industry, I mean, there should be people out there doing amazing things and, you know, like, you know, physics or biology or something that are instead working in investment management firms. Right. So, and, and I found this over the years, like we'll talk to an investment manager and they'll be like, Oh, this is how we view the markets. And you know, this is how we analyze things. And it makes perfect sense. You're like, that sounds fantastic. And then you meet with the next one, and the next one, and the next one, and they're all a little different, but basically everybody is doing really smart analysis. So it's really hard to be like, okay, my analysis is different, but yet valid. It's really hard. But the third way you can outperform in, in the public markets is to have better behavior. And this, this, this is, this is really the only one that can persist in the public, in the public markets. Right. And, and this is, so it's almost like when you, you go through the, the OODA loop and you're like, okay, you know, I'm going to observe, I'm going to take my data. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to orient, I'm going to decide, I'm going to act, you know, it's a little in the public markets, it's a different way to apply it than it is in the private markets where you absolutely can have better information and insight and analysis and some of these other things in the, in the private markets, because it's not just this just crazy playing field where, all these intelligent actors are just grinding each other down. And if you, if you look like there's few, if any, just famous public stock managers anymore. I mean, there used to be, Oh, Bill Miller and he, you know, beat the S and P 500 for 15 years running. And, you know, you had Peter Lynch and, you know, some other great ones, you know, even Warren Buffett. So, you know, Berkshire Hathaway, and it's the, one, I own two single stocks. It's the one major position that I have in my portfolio, Berkshire Hathaway, but I buy it more for behavioral reasons. I mean, Berkshire Hathaway is so big. It's so hard for them out to outperform. And a lot of the things that Warren and Charlie were doing have been ground away, right? 
So there's so many people that can replicate so many aspects of what they do in terms of like value investing and their analysis of, 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 of companies. So now the, the famous investors are people that are doing private investing. So it is people like Mark Andreessen, right? Um, of Andreessen Horowitz, the, the venture capital firm and, and others that are playing in different sort of, of, of markets. You know, you get, you get di- different people in different areas. Again, because things have changed, you know, and and th- there's these great opportunities in private markets now, and as a result, you know, the 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 number of public stocks has shrunk. People, you know, companies are waiting longer and longer to go public, and so anyway, it, it just shows the landscape change changes, and you have to be able to say, I'm going to continue to observe and orient myself in an ever-changing landscape where a lot of the patterns repeat, but they repeat in different areas, right? And so maybe I'm going to move my efforts from finding investments that outperform from the public markets to the private markets. And then the private markets will change, kind of like they did with hedge funds, right? As money plows into different areas. It's like, okay, where are the the continuing opportunities or should I just throw in the towel? (laughs) And 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 and, and so a lot of, if I'm hearing what you're saying, to be successful in thriving right? in markets over time, one has to continuously shatter their correspondence to what they think is real or true. They have to continually break, create. Or I'm sorry, they have to continue to destroy their orientations and create a new one. They have to revise. That's, they have to update because it's always in a, a state of ceaseless flux. It's always changing, and if they don't change, they're going to yeah. become obsolete or irrelevant. Absolutely. And, 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 you know, people become too dogmatic about what they believe. You know, you'll have these people who are like, oh, I, you know, I am a value investor, value, 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 value. And they just continually hit their, beat their head of the wall in value or the same thing on growth or, or any, anything else. And realizing that they're, you know, obviously different times that these different things, things work. And at, at some point it could be like, Oh, all the, you know, you look back and in 1992, Fama and French came out with their, their, you know, their four factor, um, or the three factor models, four factors now, but their, their three factor model, which is, you know, basically stocks outperform bonds and value outperforms growth and small outperforms large and, and not recognizing the fact that after that was published and people started looking at the data and going, oh, wow, that's true. The more and more you had people invest in value and, and, and size, small size, it, it then affects that research <laughs> or the, the results, right? The results going forward may well be affected by how many people believe that. And that's the fascinating, complex, adaptive system nature of, of, of the stock market. So the important thing is to have these mental models around investing. By the way, that's what my book is about. My book is about investment mental models. So it's what things you know, what mental models are out there and knowing which ones to apply when, right? So it's like you have this like quiver full of arrows (laughs) and, you know, it's like which one of these arrows or which multiple of these arrows am I going to pull out as I make decisions in this ever-changing so when, when I have multiple perspectives and I have multiple things to think about, I'm able to see markets differently. I'm able to be more agile within the space. Yeah. Or, or, you know, and, and sorry for the uh, sirens here in the background. Um, so, you know, I think, I think a, a part of it too, though, is, is, is in the stock market, it pays to be inactive. 
It really does. And it, and it pays to have, um, you know, not to react with emotion and not be trying to thinking you see patterns where maybe none exist and, and to, to set guardrails for your behavior. Cause again, behavior is the, is the most important aspect of, of investing. And so a lot of it is not reacting to things that you think are happening and to, and and again, I have a entire chapter on market cycles. So it's like understanding in general, the patterns of market cycles, but the point isn't to use the pattern market cycles to be able to call tops and bottoms and, and to move in and out. It's, it's instead it's, it's to control your own behavior. So you're not piling in and making really dumb decisions at the top or at the bottom. Like you're not gonna be able to tell exactly when the top or bottom is, but you can start saying, you know, here are the aspects I'm starting to see that suggest we're reaching an inflection point. And it could be next week or it could be in three years. We don't know. But in response to that, here's how I am going to behave knowing that things will change. All trees don't grow, our trees don't go to the, grow to the sky. There will be a change that is coming. I just don't know when. It's like, it's like you're on the train, train tracks and you know a train's coming. You can see it in a distance, but you don't know when it's going to get there. <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't know if it's going to come in a week or in, in, in three years. And, but you understand in terms of these market cycles how you're going to react. So again, my, my book is not about here's how you should invest because how can I possibly know? I don't know who the individual readers are, or their financial circumstances, and I don't know what's going on at the time that they, they, they read it. And even if I did, I couldn't say, here's how you invest. It's how to think about investing. And it's kind of like what John Boyd did is he didn't say, Hey, Marines, this is how you should fight. He said, Hey, Marines, this is how you should think about fighting right? Because I don't know what's going to happen and, and everything's going to change, you know, e- even your strategy is going to change on the battlefield. And that's why it's so important, you know, th- th- that everybody has trust, they have a, alignment in terms of the model, but then everybody can make their own decisions, right? In, in, in when it came, comes to battle, it's the same thing with investing. It's like, okay, here's all these mental models and work on knowing which ones to apply yeah. when, but it's not a cookbook or recipe here's how you should invest. And, and I'll tell you, this is a challenging, it's a challenging topic because like the uncertainty solution, the title of my book, the solution is to embrace and accept the uncertainty and then to dig deeper and say, I want to know how the world really works, which is chaotic and uncertain and full of mild and wild randomness. It's not a world filled with bell curves. It's a world full of fractal geometry and power law distributions, you know, crazy things that happen. And, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to accept that world and not cookie cutter cutter, you know, supposed certainty. And it's a tough sale. Like my editor, when I was working on this book with her, she was like, it's like learning there's no Santa Claus. I'm like, yes, but that's reality. And if you can accept that, and and you know, Mark, you and I have discussed as as you worked in the the uh, investment management industry, when you would talk about these things like creation and destruction of the OODA loop you know, you're, you're met with skepticism or blank stares because that's not what people want. They want certainty. They want, they want the physics. They want the, the formulas. They don't want to say things evolve and change and we don't know how they're going to evolve and change. We will just tell you that they will evolve and change. 
Like that's very unsatisfying. Yeah. So and, for those and, and of you guilt, that are interested yeah, in investing, closure, I have one. I think that's the and being unsatisfied. Is that finally, there's a book that a copy teaches of my people. Book. <laughs> this is a way of thinking, and it's interesting. And I, as a marine, of course, I I love the parallel that you draw. That's exactly what war fighting is, and war fighting that anybody can get online for free. Just type in MCDP one war fighting. You can download it, you can print it out, and you can cross out war fighting and you could put investing and you could cross out war fighting and put portfolio management. And for years and years and years, I said, here, just take this. Let's just take this chapter. Let's just work on this one. It's about uncertainty. Let's cross out yeah. war fighting. Let's cross out enemy and put competitors or let's cross out, uh, let's, let's, let's pro- cross out, you know, war and put markets or something like that. And what was crazy about it and no surprise yeah. to us, but, but what people would say is like, I don't understand. It's applicable to. It's not just about Marines fighting in combat. It's it's applicable to everything because, as you say, it's a way uh, it's it's a way of thinking. The other thing that you said, I think, was brilliant, is about you said dogma and becoming dogmatic. And so many get stuck in these uh, dogmas. Um, and right back to John Boyd. John Boyd, one of his admonitions was, "You have to challenge all assumptions. Otherwise, what becomes doctrine today will become dogma forever after." And what people don't realize about dogmatic ways of thinking, because I, I would run them all the time. Well, I'm an old value guy, or I'm an old, uh, no, we, we all, you know, I'm an old bond guy. I just, you know, I'm just, the, the problem with that is that they're massively vulnerable to the rate of yeah. change, to uh, market anomalies, to other things that they're not anticipating because they're not creating and destroying. They're not destroying and creating their understanding of the, of the marketplace. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's spot on. And, and, you know, there's another concept, um, how people deal with uncertainty and it's called the, co- the, the need for cognitive closure. And it's pretty fascinating. It's right. It's right along these lines. And these, these sociologists that, uh, came up with it, they, they noticed based on a lot of research and, and testing that, that what happens when we, we can't spot a, a pattern or we're feeling uncertain is that we, kind of flail around and we look for an explanation and we seize. So the first aspect is we seize on the first one that fits our worldview. That seems to make sense that we'll explain. And again, it's because we want certainty. We want the world to make sense. We want to be able to attribute a cause, right? So we seize on an explanation and then we freeze on it. So we don't want to revisit the uncertainty we felt when we came up with the explanation, right? Or or that we seized on it. So we seize and then we freeze. So then we don't want to change. And the problem with this is obviously twofold. First of all, what we seized on may well not be true. And second of all, even if it is, the world changes. And, and, and the, the, the main sociology, Ari Kruglansky, if I'm pronouncing that right, who, who came up the, with, with this, you know, he, he had these fascinating things, thing, uh, things to say about it with respect to COVID. Like COVID was just this in a nutshell, whether you were, you know, uh, on the right or on the left or in the center in, in terms of, you know, I guess you know, pretty correlated to your political views of how you viewed COVID. You know, if you if you had people that said, oh, this is just like the flu. Right. So that that was the way they dealt with the uncertainty of a pandemic was like, oh, this is just like the flu. Uh, maybe a little worse Then they seized on it and they freeze no matter the contrary evidence. And then on the left, you had the same sort of thing. You had people saying, oh, you know, the the world's ending and, and we, we need to take all these precautions, whatever. And, and then when the vaccines came out, it was like, okay, everybody has to get vaccinated. And, and, you know, maybe that made sense for the first strain, but as, as the virus evolved and the science, science changed and it looked like the vaccines were less and less effective and it, 
it didn't stop the, you know, even if it kept you from being really sick or dying, it didn't stop the spread. You know, nobody wanted to change their viewpoint on vaccines. And the view was, oh, if you didn't get vaccine uh, vaccinated, you're, you know, you're evil. And as the science changed, they didn't want to change that view. And you had it on both sides, you know, and the people saying, oh, uh, I'm going to wear a mask. I, you know, I still know people that wear masks <laughs> every day now. And then it'll be like, I'm never wearing a mask. It's just a point of pride, you know? And, and it was just fascinating that people seized on whatever explanation fit their worldview and sometimes their, their, their politics. And then they wouldn't change as, yeah, well, I think as the science now learned more is, and the virus, something that um, deeply affects markets, you know, evolved. It, it, it was uh, and, and fascinating. And actors in the markets uh, is sort of the hive mind or things that come from, uh, you know, things like mass media and other things that get people to think, uh, you know, in, in one way or the other. We've had John Robb on and we're going to have him on again. Uh, John Robb, if you're, if you're not familiar with, he wrote a tremendous book called Brave New War and, and what, a, what an amazing book and applicable uh, from a principle standpoint to, to all of this. But one of the things that he's always talking about is a lot of the, uh, the sort of the mass consensus of how it forms and how it develops and ultimately how it's overriding our orientation. It's shaping our orientation such that we observe things a certain way or decide to act a certain way and learn a certain way that are not necessarily aligned with our own wants and needs or not necessarily aligned with uh, reality. And we're talking earlier about, say, causation, right? I mean, how many times do you watch? You, first of all, you walk into a, a brokerage house or whatever. CNBC is blaring not only in the lobby but in everybody's uh, everybody's office. And if somebody, um, you know, you're, you're listening to that and you're being droned into that um, all day long, yeah. and every time the market would close, it says, yeah. "Oh, the market's up on news out of Europe that this and that," or "Oh, the market's down on news out of China." Yeah. Ridiculous. Which is ridiculous. Like this this whole single cause attribution. You have millions of investors trading hundreds of millions of shares or billions of shares of stock a day, all for their various reasons. It's affecting the market. And it's like, oh, there was this one, you know, this one single print, you know. It's like, you know, may, maybe I sold some shares of, you know, the, the Vanguard total stock market index last week because I needed to rebalance my portfolio, you know, and it's, you know, maybe I was like, oh, you know, based on my, my investment discipline, it's up and I'm going to sell and buy bonds. And it had nothing to do with whatever, you know, the news was out of the, you know, the Fed meeting or whatever. And yet it's still the market move because of the, what the Fed said, or again, the news out of, you know, China or whatever. It's just, uh, but again, it's, it's, this, it's this idea. We, we want the world to make sense, and including, this, including the stock market. And you know, in terms of the, you know, in the media and what, what people believe, you know, regardless of whatever flavor of media, because you know, you know, we, all, we, we all have the media we like, <laughs> and, and then we have the ones we don't like, right? And so, but what, what happens is, and this was the, one of the most mind-opening things I, I read years ago from a, a, a sociologist. He said, the truth is whatever your social group believes it to be. And, and think about that for a second and how true that is. And, and the point is, is that we will seek out social groups that believe what we do. And, and if we start changing our beliefs from a social group, we'll switch social groups. And, you know, it, it can explain why, you know, a huge swath of the American uh, populace believes the election was stolen and another huge swath believes everything was fine, right? And, and it's because whatever social group you're in, you're just like, who are these other people? It's just absolutely bizarre. And, you know, if you and I were on different sides of that, 
we could talk to each other till we're blue in the face about all the different facts that we have. And we wouldn't change either's mind at all because we're going to believe what our social group believes. And it explains so much about politics and religion, but also, you know, investing or anything else in the world. And it's interesting, you know, you look at the the, the rise and the fall and the rise and then the, the winter or whatever of cryptocurrencies. And, you know, there are people with respect to crypto that, you know, their main belief and like their true believership of of crypto is the fact that we should have never gone off the gold standard, right? <laughs> and like you have this group, they're like, okay, we shouldn't have got out of the gold standard and any little bit of inflation is confiscation, right? And and that is an absolute belief that some people have. And then it leads to cryptocurrency is going to save us all from it. And then you have other people that have the opposite view, you know, of, of, of inflation and or crypto or whatever. And it's just, it's just fascinating confirmation to, to see the different views based on whatever, you know, you, you find the group that reinforces your own beliefs. And, and what, do, and what, yes, because we get and, into and what that mindset and what creation of, and destruction uh, by John Boyd would say is you need to continue to tear down your beliefs, be, which is the hardest thing away, to do. And we don't want to, and you know, you were talking about earlier about Robert Corum's biography of John Boyd. As you go through that biography, uh, Boyd, the uh, fighter pilot that changed the art of war is the title. Yeah. You go through that and you realize here is somebody that embraced discomfort that that was okay with with volatility uncertainty complexity ambiguity and and was riding it because he could look at it differently and he was okay being right or wrong on his own uh versus the crowd which that's a that's an off-putting feeling to a lot of the people and as you go through that biography there are a lot of people that didn't like him for that because he wasn't a quote-unquote team player or a group uh a group person you hit on behavior too and what, what i find interesting about that so behavior um, I'm just right. say we could put in some, you know, psychology, like our, our, our emotional state. Uh, years ago, when I was a young wholesaler out in the field, there was an advisor who had a undergrad, a master's degree from, I won't say their names, but very prestigious, globally known universities and a chartered financial analyst. And he said that if I could go back 40 years and restart my career, I never would have studied finance or business. I only would have studied psychology and understanding uh, the emotions and behaviors around the uh, decisions that we make, but not only that, but how we even view markets in the first place and how we handle the information. Yeah, I think I think that's I think that is spot on. Um, and, and what we found is, and it's it's interesting. We um, we work with really wealthy families, so we're we're mainly in the. 50 to $500 million range. Our average family has $230 million on average. Median's about 170. So we were with really, really wealthy families. So, you know, we can invest in whatever, you know? So like we, you know, they're accredited, qualified purchasers, all that jazz. And, and we, you know, we get pretty good access to different things. So you'd think that like the bigger portfolio, so that, you know, the $70 million portfolio that can, you know, invest in, you know, uh, higher level managers and, you know, get into private equity and everything would outperform. But what we found is, is, is that a lot of times it's the small portfolio that the small portfolios that do the best. 
And, and it comes down to behavior because imagine you're like in a client meeting with your advisor and let's say you're a hundred million dollar family and you have like $75 million in a single portfolio, then a smattering of smaller ones and including this like hundred thousand dollar account that you set up for your grandchildren and trust or something, you know, and, and your advisor's like, okay, let's say it's March of 2020 and the world seems like it's falling apart. COVID, the market's down 35%. And your advisor says, this is a perfect time to sell tens of millions of your of your stocks and buy bonds because that's what the math says. We're going to rebalance your portfolio. And you're going to be like, no, I really don't want to do that. Who knows what's going to happen? Everything's shutting down. I heard the NBA's may, may be canceling their season. We can't, you know, all these things are happening. And you go, okay, we'll, we'll wait. We'll wait. We'll talk about this in a, a quarter or two. But how about this $100,000 one for your, your grandchild? And you're like, oh yeah, sure. Who cares, right? Or, or you know, the two million dollar one for this or that. Yeah, that's fine. And and what we found is that's why it's not it's not about the underlying investments. It's about the behavior, and what good investing behavior looks like is a lot easier to do with a small account than is a larger one. It's really hard. And what we found is a lot of clients come to us when they have exited their business, so they've you know sold their their family business, or maybe they were the wealth creator and they've you know gotten in few hundred million dollars. And it is so hard to invest one big lump sum of cash. It is so incredibly hard just, you know, behaviorally. And there, there's all these, you know, ingrained biases that are, are going to be hard about doing this. So we've, we've done, you know, invested billions and billions of dollars of cash. And, and there are and no it, magic beans. You have to overcome right? there's, there's, some of your ingrained biases and set disciplined rules in place for how you're going to do that. It's pretty fascinating. There, there is, there's, there is no secret sauce. I'll, I'll tell you. So we're we're first and foremost, for, first and foremost, a multifamily office. We work sixty three families, and a lot of them, maybe even most of them, have money elsewhere. So we may be their primary you know, investment manager, but they're, they'll be like, Oh, you know, I had, you know, I have money at with my golf buddy at Morgan Stanley or the money at, you know, Merrill, Merrill Lynch or Goldman or whatever. And because we're a family office, we're like, fine, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll download and report on it. We'll interact with them. We'll team with them. We will pull in, um, all your portfolio. We'll, we, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll take into account when we estate plan, we'll oversee the entire portfolio investment management with this as a portion. So we, we download every night from over 70 banks and brokerages which means these are portfolios that are mainly run by other people. And it includes, you know, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and Merrill Lynch and Northern Trust and Bank of America and U.S. Bank and on and on and on, right? So if you can think of them, we probably download. And we get to see not what they say they do. We get to see what they actually do. (laughs) And I will summarize what we have learned after doing this now for 20 plus years, which is there is no secret sauce. There, There is nobody out there that we're just like, oh my God, they're killing it, right? And I'm not saying that there aren't in individual investments that do. Absolutely. There are absolutely, you know, you know, different private equity investments that, that do great. And I'll tell you, a lot of private equity, we, we invest in private equity. There's a lot of private equity that beats the, you know, the, the public markets. I'm not saying there can't be great investment performance, but I'm telling you, when we look at, you know, if I were to pick on Goldman or Morgan or Merrill or something, when we look under the hood for everything that they buy, that's like, wow, that was a home run there's almost always an offsetting strikeout <laughs> or, or there's two strikeouts for every, you know, home run or, tr- or triple or, or whatever. And when you performance report on it and you just see all the expense and the taxes and the churn and the 
un, unnecessary complexity. It's just it's just mind boggling, you know, and just just the inability of most portfolios to keep up with you know a seventy thirty you know with S and P five hundred and and bond portfolio the, the inability of the vast majority of of portfolios to keep up with that just shows you that it's it's really about behavior. In, in fact, even if you take the endowment model, so everybody wants to invest by, like Yale, it's the so-called Yale model or endowment model, popularized by David Swenson, kind of the architect of it. Um, it, it you know, if you, as of uh, the data of, of last year, I haven't seen this year's, but the data of last year's, if you take all 735 reporting university endowments, most of whom have over you know a billion dollars, um, and you take their investment performance, their average and median performance is indistinguishable over one, five, 10, and 15 years from a 70-30 index portfolio. Indistinguishable. Now, there are some like Yale and Stanford and Washington University, where uh, I'm here in St. Louis, so I actually teach at the business school there. They were actually you know, number one last year and number two the year before. So there are some that can deliver outsized returns, but it means that most of them aren't because <laughs> you have these huge outliers and then you, it averages out. It just goes to show you that these, many of these, these attempts to go and emulate Yale or do things that are actually going to outperform often lead to un- underperformance. You know, you Whereas if you just say, you emulate, you I'm just going to index, like really it's copycat, right? you know, you're going to at least get the market performance, which is going to be better than most everybody else. Peter Lynch and <laughs> Bill Miller and others. And as I, as I recall from, you know, reading over the years and studying uh, behavioral economics and behavioral finance, behavioral investing, that yeah. many or most of the investors in said portfolios lost money. They, many of the average investors were actually losers over the same time periods because they bought it hot, sold it cold. And Yeah. Oh, the, the vast majority of, of people who invested in Bill Miller's extraordinary run lost money because you had to be there at the beginning to get those 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 returns. If you if you invested, and, and again, he's rebounded back. So I, this is just as of his 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 decline. But yeah, it, it's kind of like the difference between time weighted returns and then uh, dollar weighted returns or internal rate of return. So the the time weighted return for for Bill Miller and his investors was incredibly positive. The dollar weighted return, which takes into account the timings of when the flows occurred, showed that people plowed in, you know, too late to, to really gain from, you know, his, his amazing returns. And we saw it with the hedge fund industry as well. It's the, it's the exact same pattern, right? Where most of the money that's invested in hedge funds has enjoyed their underperformance, you know, because they, they piled in after most of the great performance happened. And that's the tough thing about investing is a lot of times you got to be in early in order to really reap the, the benefits of the returns. If you come in too late after, you know, it's, it's like once the pattern is established, yeah, so two thing, two themes that it you, often gets destroyed. Again, others, like the nifty and, 50 uh, or the dogs. The now, the books, or, we'll talk about hedge fund uh, industry or simple, not some easy, these even star investment managers. So simple, not easy, right? So we, we constantly, we've alluded to it earlier, how people are always looking for the easy button, the quick fix, the, the, the fast recipe, the, uh, the, magic, the magic formula, whatever. Um, but in that, they, in, in a world of complexity, which the markets are filled with uh, complex adaptive systems, billions of them, right, coming in every day. Um, why is simplicity what we should be yearning for and searching versus what's easy? 
Yeah. So, and I love this concept of simple, but not easy, because if you find something that is simple, but it's not easy to follow, not always, but it, it, it likely means that it's right. <laughs> right. Um, so f- for instance, take Warren Buffett's adage that you should be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are f- fearful. That's incredibly simple, but it is not easy to follow. <laughs> and, and I think many, many things are like that, that end up being true, especially in investing. So in investing, the, the investment management industry, you know, largely exists to justify its own existence. <laughs> You know, if if people in the investment management industry were like, okay, here's the deal. If you go out and do what Warren Buffett said to do in one of his letters, which is, you know, he didn't say everybody should do it, but he said when he dies, the amount that's going to his wife is going to go 90% in an S&P 500 index fund and 10% in a bond index fund. And that that's what Warren Buffett said, you know, you know, people should do. Imagine is if everybody in the investment management industry was like, oh yeah, that's great advice. You know, that's what we're going to tell our clients. Like, Everybody be like, I can do that on my own. I can go to Robinhood or E-Trade or, you know, Schwab, and I can do that on my own. What do I need you for, investment manager? And and and, and quite frankly, if you did that over time, again, you would likely be, I don't know, 90 plus percent, 95 plus percent of, of investors out there, uh, maybe 99%. But what an investment advisor is going to do is they're going to want to justify their own existence. And I'll tell you, they can justify their own existence. I'm an investment advisor. Like we charge a lot of money for what we we do. But the main value we bring is on the investing, it's behavior, right? We're going to help, we're going to make your portfolio as simple as it can be, right? And then we're going to help you with your behavior. But then we're a family office. So, you know, we're going to, we're going to pay your bills. We're going to manage your charitable contributions. We're going to manage all your state planning entities. We're going to help you with estate planning. We're going to do all this tax stuff. Like we're going to do all these other things. So if somebody pays us, you know, all this money, they feel the value from that that allows us to say, hey, we're going to be, we're going to be more simple in this portfolio that we're going to create for you. We're okay saying, you know, I'll tell you, we, we have a client that on her, I don't know whether her portfolio is 150, 170 million dollars or something. It's in two, it's in two funds. It's in a bond fund and it's in an all-country world index that we slightly tilted more domestic than it, it is. But but that's it. It's incredibly cheap. It's incredibly easy behaviorally. And like her portfolio, it's just rocking and rolling. And can you imagine like if we weren't her family office? Because she'd be like, why am I paying you all this money for you to put me into two funds? But in in our first year and a half of working with her. She was recently widowed when we worked with her, started working with her. We met with her every single week for over a year. Like we had that much going on and that many things we were doing for us. And she was like, oh my gosh, you guys are indispensable. But imagine if we were only her investment advisors and we're we're, be like, you know, not her name, but Mrs. Smith, let's meet once a year. (laughs) All we're going to do is rebalance to your, you know, your 75, 25, (laughs) you know, stock bond, two funds. Um, I mean, there's no way, but I'll tell you doing that, that simple way of investing, you know, I can't tell you the proportion and what what exact index you should follow, but you know that sort of simple investing is is likely going to beat whatever listener, whatever else you're doing out there. And I'll tell you, I say this with total humility because my 401k plan is in four Vanguard index funds: a bond fund, large cap fund, small cap fund, international fund. I never look at it; it rebalances. I don't even know how often. 
twice a year, four times a year, whatever. I have no idea. And it has outperformed. I went back when I was writing my book. I looked. It has outperformed my outright portfolio where, where I can invest in whatever I want. So here I am. I'm the president. I'm the president chief strategist of a firm that oversees $15 billion. I've written a book that's mainly about good investment behavior. And my simple Vanguard account has outperformed what I do. And it's because I don't have as good behavior. I, I look at my portfolio too often. I tinker. I buy individual stocks here and there. Uh, not often. I mean, it's not too far off, but, well, I got, but I think goodness. We'll have to do another I mean, episode. Hello. We'll to get you on uh, it's, it's, James it's Dimian. So, yeah, I think the power of simplicity of victory, but he talk, it's about is really too, which was a major influence to Boyd. Underappreciated. And, and you've said it in your work that sometimes inactivity is better than activity. And, and, and most of the street, if you will, or the, you know, the investment world is trying to get activity because that's how, mm. I mean, fees are generated, right. Or whatever. And sometimes it's better just to sit on your hands and do nothing. It's, Almost always better sit in your hands to do nothing. I'll tell you, an important mental model for, for investors to have is when you go to make an investment decision, so I'm talking about selling something and buying something else, realize that on average, it'll be a loser. I can't, not everyone will, but on average, like most of the time, it will be a loser. And this has been shown in multiple studies, including even a professional uh, investors. There's this great one of pension plan sponsors. But I'll tell you that uh, the study that, that I go through in my book that is so well illustrates this is called Boys Will Be Boys, a study of gender inv- uh, gender differences investing or so- something like that. And th- th- these academic researchers got a discount brokerage firm to give them 10 years of data on 35,000 accounts, individual accounts. And what they, they looked at is, is who invested better. And they found that it went like this, single females, married females, married males, and then with single males bringing up the rear. And they looked at why that was the case. And they found that both genders were equally as bad at making investment decisions, regardless of marital status. On average, most of the time, whatever they sold outperformed whatever they bought. So the reason the single females outperformed the single males and on down the line was they traded less. So they traded 45% less than the single males. So if on average, every time you make an investment decision, you lose, <laughs> you know, it's like how, you know, it's like the people that didn't go to the casino, right? <laughs> didn't play slot machines, ended up with more money at the, at the end of the day. And, and that has been shown with, with other studies, been shown with pension plan sponsors. And it, it, it's important to keep in mind. And, and I think if you go back, Anybody that's, that's listening, if you go back to your own Isn't investment it, portfolio you read, uh, you Jack and look Schwed's, at uh, what your investment books. decisions were, I think you'll find it's the, the same series case. of interviews Mostly, with whatever you did uh, all kinds of traders, was a loser. You know, whether they're fund managers, <laughs> there's, there's a whole series of them. There's like the very famous one that had uh, you know, a lot of the trend following mm, traders no. and, and futures traders. But, but a lot of it is interesting how it, it dispels so many myths of the greatest traders aren't in there looking at screens all day long and shouting and throwing order tickets and doing all this crazy, uh, crazy stuff. They're usually quite patient. Uh, they're quite disciplined. And I think it goes back to what you were saying about behavior. They've got their behavior under control. They've got their emotions. They've got their psychology under control. And they probably yeah. do something to work at it to improve that. Maybe they're doing yoga or exercising or swimming or running or doing something to, to, to promote their, uh, their mindfulness. 
uh, bring us home with, you know, you do a, a great job of talking about information. And I think that this is something that people completely uh, mess up. And I, what I loved about your, uh, how you categorize it, it's very similar to how we would do it in the, in the, in the uh, Marine Corps, um, how we would parse information starting with data. Why don't you uh, walk us through that? Because I think that, that not being able to discern and identify these things people really set themselves up for failure if they don't understand uh, the categorization of information. So bring us up with that. Yeah. 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 So uh, there's something called the wisdom hierarchy. And um, there was a Russell Akoff was an organizational theorist that came up with this. It's, it's brilliant. And basically information or information is one of the categories too, but it goes data at the bottom of the base of the pyramid, then information, then knowledge, and then wisdom. And what data is, and I'll give you an example, is be something like housing starts. So you just get this data from, I guess the Bureau of Labor Statistics keeps this, like just housing starts, right? So it's just raw data. It's very plentiful. It's everywhere in the world, but it's not all that useful on its own information would be taking data and organizing it in a way that gives you some insight and some usefulness. So you can take housing starts and you can look at it maybe over time and you can look at it by zip code and you can like, you can say, Oh, multifamily versus single family houses over a million versus 500 to a million versus you can start seeing how different sectors of the economy, both in terms of wealth and geography are, are, are doing with respect to housing starts. So that's information. So that is a lot more useful than data. Knowledge is taking information and this gets more to like the void idea of synthesizing, right? So you synthesize it. You say, okay, I have now housing data and I'm going to use that and I'm going to put it together with unemployment claims and interest rates and GDP growth and other things. And I'm going to use that. I'm going to have this knowledge about where we might be heading in terms of the market cycle. Wisdom is the very top and that's using your experience to to know what to do with the knowledge. And this is how to make decisions. So this is kind of like the, kind of the, the, de, you know, the decide and act, right? <laughs> if, if this is the, the others are, uh, you know, it's kind of like the, the, um, the observe is kind of data and information and, and, uh, and you get into orient, which is kind of knowledge and then decide and act is like, what do you do with this knowledge? And that's wisdom. And wisdom is to know that you cannot time market tops or bottoms that you're probably going to be wrong. And to do it successfully, you'd have to be right twice at the top and at the bottom or at the bottom at the, at the top. And you would know based on wisdom, how you should act and what, what sort of uh, actions you should take, or more importantly, what in investing, what short, sort of actions you shouldn't take. Right. And some of it's counter cyclical. So you'd be saying as the economy is booming, maybe I'll be working on reducing my leverage if I'm a business. Right. Or if I'm an investor, I'm going to do the very hard thing. I'm going to sell stocks and buy bonds because my investment discipline says to do that. Even though everything's screaming, I want to pile in and make more money. And, and, and so that's a really, I think, important way of, of viewing the world. And wisdom is what's most important, but we tend to get caught down in the data and information areas. And I'll tell you, most of the investment management industry is about showcasing data information or knowledge and is really light on the wisdom. And, and I'll tell you, I'm, I'm the I'm the chair of a, of a $250 million endowment. I've been on all sorts of different charitable investment committees and things like that. And what what I love is 
these investment managers always come in and they present to us <laughs> and they spend all this time explaining what's currently happening or what's happened in the past. So it's like, okay, here's all this information. <laughs> and I guess their hope is, is that by showing us that they have their handle on all this sort of information or, or knowledge that we're going to be like, you're a talented investment manager. But really what differentiates a great investment manager from everybody else is how they apply wisdom. And again, this is, these are things that are simple and not easy. So the wisdom would be, we're going to be inactive. We're going to have a simple portfolio. Well, it's interesting. Again, we're going to focus on think of a Boyd thing too, and, and you alluded to it in your article. You know, uh, energy we're, we're not going to look at our portfolio One of, one of his uh, driving <laughs> you know, forces things that behind I coming up like, and spending years <laughs> to come up with destruction creation was he was trying to figure out why, why, why me? How did I come up with energy mm. maneuverability theory where there's eminent PhDs and engineers and scientists all over the world, yet I'm the one that came up with it? And it goes back to what you just said, having that wisdom of experience uh, in his years of, uh, of, of flying fighter, mm. fighter jets. Um, I, I, yeah. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. Yeah. First and foremost, he was a pilot. Yeah. Well, and it was it was fascinating. I guess he went back and got what is his his master's in engineering at Georgia Tech or or, or someplace. I mean, just just amazing. Just shows his quest for information or his quest for knowledge and wisdom because because to take that sort of learning and the way he thought and put it with the practical experience of being a top fighter pilot, you know, an instructor. Um, it's those things that came together that were very rare. Did other people do that? Yeah, I'm sure some people did. Um, you know, my my uncle was a was a fighter pilot. In fact, was like the chief test pilot for the F-15 program, flew in Vietnam and everything. And you know, majored in engineering at University of Illinois. Super smart. So there's other out there that are you know you know really smart engineering people and, and fighter pilots. But it's this small little group, and it. T- you know, okay, well, I guess it, it goes back right to what we started combination with, of then know, his personality is for creation, for, the mission of that, knowledge the, that the intent wisdom of that was to really improve our capacity to be remarkable in action. Whereas my uncle was just a really good fighter. Continuously learning. <laughs> and if we can't continuously learn, we're never going to be able to adapt. And if we can't adapt, we can't survive, let alone thrive. And it's again, for the, for the, markets world of markets and, and the ebbs and flows and the stocks and bonds just the chaos and the, the you know the volatility uncertainty complexity ambiguity aka vuca um what a wonderful place to learn yeah. about boyd to talk about boyd to think about boyd and to apply the theories um because they're going to present yeah. themselves everywhere the only requirement is you have humans that mm-hmm. make uh that make decisions <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and the investing area is perfect for it. And and I'll tell you, like I was telling you, I think before we start recording, you know, I, I had read about Boyd. I had done some studying of Boyd, and yet I don't mention Boyd anywhere in my book. I think it helped inform my views of uncertainty and and patterns and everything. But I I didn't even link 
like the OODA loop and well, creation and destruction and once you see it, investing until you can't we first see it. And and once like, it clicks, oh my gosh. <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't unclick. You know, I was going down the, and, and the Charlie Munger the, route uh, of Mendel models who probably got his idea of Mendel models from Boyd. You know, that's why I think it's so important. And as you say, you know, the themes in the books, yeah. we, we, we've said this to guests. Uh, Ponch was famous on, yeah. I think, our ninth episode with Inez Epolito. He said, so, you know, nothing about John Boyd, yet, you know, everything about John Boyd, because all of these things are inherent. Successful people are doing these things. If you're thriving, this is exactly what you're doing. And, and the awareness that he helped create around it with, with his ideas, that's what empowers people. That's what... Um, because it always comes down to Boyd. Remember, people, ideas, and things. It's 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 how we think, and it's our cognitive power that we're all equipped with. Um, and when we free that up to uh, break those models, to you know, create uh, and destroy the models, uh, revise and update them. That's how we get to that that place. So, um, Mm-hmm. Well, I will. I will definitely be directly hey, a, quoting a, John Boyd in my know, second a, book, a which is on topic. What a more wealth and happiness the, and the world purpose in the face right of, in that world. of abundance. A lot of you know, especially his concept of um, you know being somebody versus doing something. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. What. Well, I mean, look at, you know, he, he never had material riches and if anything at every turn eschewed them, it was like, I'm not going to go that direction. But yet here we are, you know, when did he die? 1997. So, you know, here we are so long after his death, still talking about the the impact and the contributions he's, he's made. And it's not not just like two dudes talking about, I mean, he's had major effect on, um, you know, definitely the military, but other, other areas, you know, he chose to do something which, you know, it's kind of interesting. I think, you, you know, it, it caused him to be somebody, but not in the way he meant to be somebody. He, he became somebody that was, you know, really made an, an impact and has a lasting legacy, which so many, you know, Success titans and captains of industry of that have goals. generated hundreds so, of millions or billions of dollars uh, of wealth and have told us. All, you know, I think that created Boyd money. Was, uh, um, was, was all over it that. It just shows that so, ideas can go um, on and John, on forever. Where, so the book is The Uncertainty material Solution. Things Where else do we end. need to go to uh, learn more about your work and everybody can read your uh, um, your great article on Boyd, which we'll, we'll link to. Um, I also am a subscriber to your, uh, IFOD. So. Yeah. The interesting fact of the day. Yeah. So John M Jennings.com john m jennings.com and yeah my blog's there you can subscribe we'd love to have a you know people as a subscriber more about me more about my 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 book and the interesting fact of the day i just write on just random things that uh, are hopefully it's uh you know uh, so we will we will hopefully sort of interesting the, the one that i have cooking say, that'll probably uh, come out john, tomorrow is on coming on uh, how to do no nothing and uh, helping us continue productively. To the work of john i had to throw in the product productively because we're in america <laughs> well we'll do it We'll do it. Uh, we'll do it again. We've got a lot more to do, so we'll do it again for sure. Thanks. Thanks. I had a great time. Totally different than any other podcast I've been on, in a good way. <laughs>
That's all for this episode of No Way Out. We thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the conversation. Make sure you check out the show notes for links to people, ideas, and things discussed in each episode. As always, we want to thank our guests as they are hand-selected to improve your orientation. You can thank our guests by leaving a comment or sharing this episode with a friend. Just a friendly reminder, your competition may be a No Way Out subscriber. Don't let them disrupt your OODA loop subscribe today. Thanks again for listening. And we'll catch you in the next episode of No Way Out. What am I getting at? The underlying message is very simple then. There is no way out unless we can eliminate the features just cited. Well, problem though, we don't know how to do this. So again, I think we have a next level. Disorder, which is that it's called fail, fail. We want to get a matchup between our actions and our situations so we do. If we have a mismatch, we can't cope, right? If you're in equilibrium condition, you're dead. In other words, you want to have a wide variety of sources you've got of information to find out those things hold together and those things don't hold together. The ambiguity helps to make adjustments to adapt, to adjust to the world. You can look at things from several points of view. Implicit cross-referencing process of projection, empathy, correlation, and rejection.